You're listening to the GamesIntry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Brendan Sinclair. Marie D'Alessandri. And Hayden Taylor. We'll be discussing the biggest stories of the past week in the games industry, starting with, as is becoming a common trend, the coronavirus outbreak across the world. Um, Now, as you'll have heard on the previous episode, we actually kind of quickly update that episode because GDC has been cancelled. We've had more events cancelled in the past week. I'm going to try and rattle through all of my bullet points here um, in kind of one kind of slog of headlines, and then we can dissect and discuss um, other points later. Um, so events that have been cancelled in the last week is Google I.O., uh, Supercell and Space Apes Games First London, NVIDIA's GTC 2020, that's now an online conference, Epic's Unreal Fest Europe, Alt-GDC, which is one of the alternative events that um, sprung up in the, in the wake of GDC's postponement that's now um going to be a, a twitch streamed event rather than an in-person um gathering for people in san francisco rocket league world championship got cancelled today um i have a note here that i believe that at the time f8 um facebook's f8 so which was due may 5th to 6th was kind of the latest in the year to be cancelled but brendan you've heard of a, a conference in canada being cancelled yeah yes? so it's the collision conference and it's uh, actually like a, a really big tech conference um with with some gaming elements last year sean Layden was there for sony and laura miele for ea um and they're like june 22nd to 25th i think was was this year's right. schedule and uh they just cancelled this morning so now the you know the cancellation event horizon if you will <laughs> is a couple weeks past when e3 is supposed to happen so i'm getting really kind of uh i don't know my my, my personal odds of e3 happening seem to my assessment of them seems to be going down on a daily basis well, we'll touch on that in a second. Um, the ESA has stated, like I think as recently as like yesterday, or certainly the day before, that it is still planning to move ahead with GDC. That's despite the fact that the city of Los Angeles has declared a state of emergency, although, as people keep pointing out to me, that's largely just kind of raise awareness and, and get the resources ready for if they do need to deal with more outbreaks. Um, quick round the table then, and we'll start with you, Brendan. Who thinks E3 is actually going to happen this year? I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. It feels maybe it's just been, you know, like 20 years of being in the industry and and being conditioned to think that E3, well, it has to happen, you know, and Sony has to be there and all this other kind of stuff, which is not necessarily true. So, like, it's it's really weird to consider a, a year where there's new consoles launching and E3 doesn't happen or or year where the ESA, you know, is is been under fire for so long and so many people are looking at it as like, oh, well, E3's a has-been kind of thing. It's and it needs to be retired and, and all that criticism and them just kind of like, well, we're not going to have it after all. It, it's <sighs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. I'm open to anything happening at this point. At the risk of channeling our publisher Chris and throwing a Doctor Who reference in, E3 feels like kind of uh, feels like a fixed point in time. It's a fixed moment in time that cannot be changed every year. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure. I feel like that of all of them is the one that's that's stubbornly going to go ahead, largely because the ESA is so 
there's so much pressure for the ESA to kind of win everyone back over after the data leaks and after the fact that Sony's not in it. And even, um, I think it was reported yesterday, their own creative directors for the E3 show floor, IM8bit, they have also pulled out. So it kind of feels like they, on the one hand, they, they feels like they need to run E3 this year, but also feels like this is the perfect year for them to take a year off and work out what the hell they're doing. Yeah. Um, Hayden, Marie, your thoughts? Um, I mean, I don't want to go all, like, conspiracy theory or anything, but the the fact I am at 8-bit just dropped in the middle of all this coronavirus um, fear and stuff feels very ominous to me. I don't know. I don't know if they're going to cancel um, E3, but it doesn't look really good. I, I, I'd personally say that it's probably not going to happen. If I just look at what's happening in other countries, uh, in France, for instance, every gathering of people um, above 5,000 people is just cancelled until further notice uh, and I'm sure other countries have done other things I know what's happening in France because obviously but I'm sure there are other measures of this sort being taken so what could that mean for E3 I am not sure because it's weird because June feels very far away but also it's tomorrow you know what I mean so <laughs> sorry for the F word it's a family podcast it's just more, more edit work for me I've got I've got I've got to put a bleep no, in now do that. that's okay <laughs> One thing that I think we, we should point out here is like that, that IM8 bit um, pulling out announcement, they didn't say anything about coronavirus. Yeah, I know. That's why it, I would, yeah. It no. sounded more like a creative differences kind of thing. Which again, that's a worry because this goes back to this goes back to what um, you know, Jeff dropping out, Jeff Keeley dropping out because of you know he didn't agree with the something along the lines he didn't agree with the, the direction the show is going. Um, which beyond that leaked pitch deck, we still don't know what that actually means. Um, I would. I, I, I'm going to throw in here. Like, even if E3 is cancelled, I don't think it will be cancelled in the way the show itself will be cancelled. But I imagine we'd still get like the Nintendo Direct that week. Microsoft will do something to kind of do off the. Like, the so the, the the press conferences, which for me, as both a gamer and a journalist, that's the kind of the heart of E3 for me is all those press conferences that happen before the show even starts. Those may well still happen, even if the show itself doesn't. So my my thoughts on 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 E3 with this is like until GDC was postponed uh the organizers basically said it was it was going to keep on happening. So E3 saying or the ESA saying E3 is going to is going to happen like they they're, they're going to keep on saying it's happening in, until it it doesn't happen basically. And I think there'll be like a few deciding factors with that a bit like with GDC. Um, although they never explicitly mentioned that the the, the slew of fairly notable companies dropping out of the show, although they never actually said that was the reason, I don't think it's a huge leap of logic to suggest that definitely played a part. So I think the whether or not E3 goes ahead will be come more down to which companies start pulling out first. Um, and the sort of the speed at which they pull out, but like I was speaking to Matt about this earlier as well, and like there there's a real political element to like the coronavirus sort of discussion and whether or not um, events are cancelled because we're seeing uh, event organisers and, and game companies and stuff. It, what they don't want to be sort of seen as by the public is a company that doesn't care about the risk of sending their employees mm. to a trade show on the other side of the world where they could potentially become exposed to coronavirus. And so it stops being about whether or not there is 
like what what the scale of the risk is in it starts becoming about how that company wants to be perceived because it's it's face saving it's face saving and it's uh we take the health and safety of our players personnel and fans I mean we should make sense. I, I, th- I think calling it face saving is is a little bit dismissive though it's like be- no, because okay. th- there is an element to it of like they they do take it very seriously and if you look at the level of panic that is going on around coronavirus at the moment like it's it's kind of staggering because you know and this is my sort of youthful hubris that will no doubt get me killed but personally i i haven't really been that bothered by it um like i'm i'm not lying awake at night worrying about coronavirus in the way that you know like my my twitter feed at the moment is just full of images of just like empty shops that have been cleared out of like antibacterial gel and bottled water and you know people are like protect like preparing for the apocalypse and even if that's only a very very small minority of people who are kind of of that mindset if you're a company that's saying fly to the other side of the world and go to a convention center where you know everyone gets sick after conventions anyway like rebecca was off um, for a couple of days after pax not even coronavirus just general being in a big room full of hundreds of thousands of like nerds and their dirty hands all over things you know so i i think there is a very legitimate concern that people have about traveling to these areas especially for really big events that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people and you know the it's does the company really have the right to kind of put people under that level of risk that's kind of what it comes down to but mm. also on the flip side um you know the one event that has been cancelled is the doom eternal launch party in london <laughs> next week which is about eight eight hundred maybe like a thousand people which is basically just a busy pub in london so there's kind of there's definitely a question around like what is wh- where are we drawing these lines because that's a do- the yeah. doom eternal launch party is like I say it, it's it's a busy it's a busy pub in london that's it so are we closing down busy pubs now I hope are not. we like as, as <laughs> and as far as we know res is going ahead later this month um and that's around 15,000 people it's a regional event you know we don't have the same level of like international travel as you do with like pax or gdc but it's 15,000 people you know there's city centers all around the world that have that many people in them yeah, and we're but... not closing those down like the london underground for example good lord that place is a den of like disease and filth and viruses oh, but come on. millions of people are traveling on it every day yeah. brendan have you been on the london underground it's a very good inf- like <laughs> transport infrastructure but god it's it's nasty oh right. it's nasty <laughs> Okay, well, let's not bag on public transit too much here. No, it's uh, good. It's great. I love it, but it is nasty. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing is, I'm actually kind of um, encouraged by by the, the way a lot of uh, companies have been reacting to this. I mean, yeah, it's a busy pub in London is the, the uh, parallel for, you know, that Doom launch party, but people go to a busy pub in London because they want to go to a busy pub in London. They're, they're not obligated to go because of work. They're, they're not made to feel, you know, like, like there are these external pressures on them that are requiring them to put themselves in harm's way so much as they want to get tanked. And that's worth whatever risk there is in, in going there. 
and you look at like uh, the Microsoft and Bungie with their work from home initiatives and, and Microsoft I saw today um, also because of the work from home uh, initiative, they don't really need all that like custodial staff and, and all the, the hourly workers that would normally just kind of keep the offices running uh, day after day. And they're, they've decided that they are going to pay them um, during this, you know, work from home period here, even though they're not having to like come to work and, and keep the, the office up. And like, I'm, I'm encouraged one that, that publishers are, and companies are, are taking their employees health seriously and that they are acknowledging, um, they're having, doing something for your job and for your employer is different from choosing to do it because you want to do it. They're acknowledging that there are pressures on these people to to show up for work unless they're specifically told, no, it's cool to work from home, things like that. Um, and yeah, it's like that, that paying your hourly employees also, the custodial staff, um, even though they're not going to be needed. Like these are, these are acknowledgements of kind of the knock on effects of things and the way, the way people in the past, I feel like they, their, their needs and their difficulties would have generally been ignored. So hooray for that. I'm sorry yeah, for no, your def- doom launch party being canceled. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I was looking forward to that, but yeah, you, you are, you are right, Brandon. Hooray for that. <laughs> Maybe the Doom launch party had a large intake of like um, international visitors expected. Maybe like seven hundred fifty nine, seven hundred ninety nine of the Doom launch party attendees would have been international, and it would just be Hayden from here, <laughs> and that's why it's a risk. I was going to get two, so. <laughs> two, seven hundred ninety eight. Okay, you're defeating both my logic, my maths, and my point. Sorry, um, James. So, <laughs> all all three equals <laughs> both. I know. I'm loving this. <laughs> The great thing is, to get us back on topic, the great thing is to, to, to circle back to E3 briefly. Like, if if E3 is cancelled over the weekend, we are recording on Friday afternoon as usual. If the E3 is cancelled over the weekend, I can edit all of that out and no one will know. <laughs> and no one will sound gotcha. dumb. However, if you are hearing this, E3 is still on as far as we are aware. <laughs> um, now, to go back to what Brendan was talking about, um, remote work and getting... Um, people to, to work at home and start and paying them that way and considering where, whether uh, you know, employees need to travel so we've seen Microsoft and Bungie are two of the companies there's a number of companies like a couple of indies have said right we're telling everyone to work at home this was kind of something I wanted to um, branch into and discuss as to how practical this is um, I'm going to briefly uh, quote from Mr. Strauss Zelnick CEO of Take Two he was talking at a conference today he was saying um uh, people are going to have to find a way to be just as productive as they are in the office as they are at home. I'm paraphrasing there slightly. Um, actually, I think one of the things that may come out of this, if it is as widespread as we believe, um, one expected, unexpected consequence is a lot of us who were sceptical about remote work are going to be less sceptical about it. I'm one of them, by the way. I'm not a big believer in remote work, but I think I may be surprised. I think you're going to see a significant change, maybe a long-lasting change in business travel. Is remote work as, as effective as being face-to-face? I actually don't think so. But every one of you and he pointed to the conference audience, I assume, Um, lost productivity getting here and returning from here and the time that is less productive here. I'm not sure. We may be very surprised coming out of this. Um, Now, we are a remote working team, so I think we can speak with experience on remote working, but then the nature of our work is slightly different to that of of other people. Like, 
what impact do we think remote working might have on the productivity of the in- industry like I th- is, it, is it starbound was like entirely and some indie games are like entirely developed remotely roll seven they are now an entirely remote studio have been for a couple of years and yet their games get done and you know they're, they're acclaimed they sell reasonably well so how much do we really need to be with each other i don't think i don't think we do and as you just said there's a lot of studios out there who have been uh, entirely remote and who are doing games. I was just talking to Two Dogs, for instance, who is also a virtual studio. And if one of the unexpected consequences of this whole coronavirus thing is that people realize the values of remote working, I'm all for it. I know that might be a weird thing to say because I'm obviously not for coronavirus in itself. Um, but you see what I mean. <laughs> that made sense, I promise. Good Good to know that you're anti-coronavirus, <laughs> yes, um, yes. Marie. I'm glad, glad that's on the record. I am glad too. So how do I come back from this now? Um, <laughs> remote working is good, is what I meant to say. And I do hope that people do realise that, yes, you can be as effective uh, remote working as you are when you're in office. There are so many means now to communicate with your team. Uh, Discord that we actually use right now to record this podcast is one of them uh, whatever you want to use slack whatsapp whatever uh, microsoft teams there are many many tools that allow for uh, effective um collaboration and i think uh well that's and yeah if that that can be a thing that people realize through all of this maybe it's a good thing question mark i think it's kind of like a point of scale like roll seven is a pretty small studio i don't know how many people they've yeah. got but you know, it's not Microsoft or Take Two, for example. At time, at times, I think they had three people. Yeah. So and like, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of remote work. I think remote work and sort of flexible work should be part of kind of every office environment. I think the idea that you have to be in the office every single day is arbitrary nonsense. But I also recognize that, like, there are some problems with communication around remote work. Cause, like, yeah, there are lots of tools, you know, like slack and trello and you know uh, discord that you can use to kind of keep keep on top of things but there is something about especially when you're trying to communicate a more difficult thing through kind of slack for example and it, the way that you word it becomes so much more important than just like rolling your chair over to the desk just next to you and just kind of talking about it and even booting up Discord, it's like, although it's a very small thing, it is like this kind of extra barrier between you and the other person. So I'm I'm not sure about remote working uh, at scale as like a kind of, uh, as like a status quo thing. But I, I think it's, if it encourages more companies to adopt a more flexible remote working arrangement, that's definitely a positive thing. Because like there are real benefits to just having having that flexibility in your team, but also nothing quite replaces a face-to-face interaction. So I don't think it should be all one or all the other. I think there is a happy and productive middle ground in there somewhere. Yeah, like there's, if, if, if the job uh, is okay with autonomy, on on the workers parts like ours generally is um we coordinate but we don't on individual stories it's it's not like every day we're working together on them so hmm. if if there is autonomy for the workers then remote work is really well suited but the thing is like we we have seen uh small developers work remotely and that i think i think we've seen larger and larger small developers 
work remotely and figure out processes for kind of managing uh, more people. We're obviously still not at like a triple A scale. The best we get there is like the Ubisoft, you know, six or seven different studios have combined to work on this sort of thing. Um, but I, I mean, the thing is, we, we've I think there are teams out there that have done this and have have made progress in, in learning how to do it effectively. And what we need now is like some sort of conference where we could all get together and share these learnings in person. <laughs> some sort of conference for game developers, Brendan. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, and we could we could put it in one city that has a lot of game developers in it, anyways. I think you're onto a really I think you're onto a really good idea there. So at the risk of kind of stemming the tide of that of that sarcasm there, I do want to pick up on <laughs> Brendan's point about um, AAA games. Obviously, maybe those don't lend themselves to remote work as uh, quite as readily. Um, Matt wrote a piece with um, the CEO of Streamline Media Group, um, Alexander Fernandez, earlier this week. Um, Streamline's an outsourcing company. Uh, they they kind of hand, help you know co-develop games for big AAA companies, and he was saying that um, the spread of the virus will actually get to the point where it disrupts games and delays games, not just manufacturing. We've already seen the kind of the impact on manufacturing and shipping. Um, the TurboGrafx-16 mini console has been delayed. There's speculation, and I think it's almost certain that one or both of the next-gen consoles, they're going to get pushed into next year. But he was suggesting that, um, like so many people recently like he was talking about this at dice so back in early february um so many people coming to him and saying do you have any form of resources i need help because so many people are struggling to get their projects going going or or, or preparing to struggle to get their projects going because this spread is so um because this virus is so widely spread because it's going to have an impact on productivity so even outsourcing companies are now going to kind of get dwarfed as much as they can do with the outbreak and we'll start to see big games being delayed so yeah the larger the project obviously like it doesn't lend itself to remote work I just the the sheer scale of the impact of this virus and we should as always say that delayed games delayed consoles and people having to remote work for a while is nothing compared to the actual worst case scenario of this and the you know the the deaths that people are suffering but the implications on this industry are clearly going to be felt for months, perhaps years. I mean, the the silver lining might just be like if Strauss Zelnick was saying um, companies are forced to try remote work and they find that they can actually rely on it a lot more than than they've expected to to this point. I mean, there are so many issues like if you're working remotely, um, you don't need to commute. So you're saving, you're saving time there. You don't need to live in one of the most expensive urban centers in the world. So you're, and, and the, so you're not having to like have an obscene salary just just to get by. You can live wherever. And and there are a lot of people that you know work in San Francisco and then live you know, like a 60, 90 minute commute away just because that's like the, the cheapest place that, that they can find uh, on, on their salary. And then that's another three hours of, you know, time wasted. And like all that stuff adds up. The the cost of it, the, the time spent, I, I think it actually, remote work could help solve a lot of the quality of life issues uh, that, that 
game developers have been facing when, you know, no commute means you can spend more time with your family. Um, you save all that time showering and shaving and brushing your teeth. <laughs> uh, not, not, not I really. Mean, we, we are all. I, I don't know. I've, I've started working from home more. And the great thing is like, I don't need to get dressed. I just spend all day in my pajamas and you know, it's just like a regular day in the office, but I can talk. To, I've got the cat there who I can just talk to freely all day. I'm nice and comfy. I can just, you know, eat cereal whenever I like. It's great. And I don't need to. I've, I don't I've, need to make you know the the onerous commute to the office, which is a twenty minute walk, by the way. <laughs> and you can live wherever is... you want. <laughs> yeah, there there are and yet, so I, many. And yet I still live in Brighton. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, instead of coming to like the nice office with all like the free drinks and good internet, I sit in like a dank flat. <laughs> there are downsides to remote work, also because clearly. People lose some of their basic social skills <laughs> over time oh, yeah. in isolation. Yeah. That's actually yeah. yeah. But there there are ways to mitigate it. Look, my my cat is an excellent conversation. Yeah, all you need is a cat. I mean, that's 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 a true yeah. thing. But it is true that that is the downside of of remote working. Though is like you can you can feel isolated. But I think if if like if you have a good team around you there's always going to be communication and you will always feel like you are actually working with people also you know you can just go outside and talk to real people that's also a thing and thankfully this is the games industry where we're all really well adjusted (laughs) socially competent no no problems there it does kind of go back to what I was saying before, though, about like finding a happy middle ground, because, you know, as much as I do like to work from home, it is nice to come in the office and just kind of be around people for like at least a few days a week. And <laughs> <laughs> just, just 20, um, 30 minutes. And then you're like, oh, yeah, 20- now I remember why I don't like <laughs> <laughs> But it, it is like that, that kind of that social aspect to it, because work, working from home for extended periods like can be very isolating. Um, mm. And... So yeah, I think kind of finding that that healthy balance. So I I think if one thing does come from all of this, that that larger companies adopt just more flexible work from home policies in general, um, that to me just strikes me as just a, a really positive step forward because it also creates a lot of allowances for sort of individual mental health requirements and things like that. Because you know one of the one of the reasons I don't always come to the office and I work from home is because I'm basically just too depressed to get like get dressed and leave the house. So I'm like, well I can work from home and still kind of function, but I don't need to like go and expose myself to all the horrors of the outside world. Like today is an inside day. And that makes it a lot easier to just kind of get on with my job day to day. And, you know, I know that I'm not alone with that. You know, there are millions of other people who sort of struggle with that. So I think allowing that flexibility is really, really important. And when you consider the money that the companies will save on the the office space and not having to pay Mm -hmm. people to live in the super expensive areas, like, I I think that they will be incentivized to, to do this. I mean, games journalism kind of went predominantly work from home, I think. Uh, out of mm. out of necessity, <laughs> because they couldn't really afford other models, and and the idea that uh, game development could could kind of you know do that as as a luxury to save some overhead is, I think people will be interested in that. Yeah. 
It's been a while since I've heard that, and uh, for anyone that doesn't recognise it, we are obviously talking about the 20th anniversary of the PlayStation 2. It's 20 years to the week where since it came out in Japan. Uh, it still stands, I believe, as the biggest selling home console of all time, unlikely to be beaten anytime soon, although apparently the Switch is kind of catching up. Um, or did no the Wii the Wii still has the Switch outside sure, the Wii actually. yet? I don't no, think no. it has. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, Wii was no, over I didn't. I didn't well, okay, well, right. So uh, yeah, and and the, and the DS was 120 million, so it was even more than that. Um, so yeah, the PS2 is is untouched. And um, there's a great piece actually on the site um, from Friday. If you go back, uh, Rob wrote um, kind of lessons learned from the PlayStation 2, um, things that about the launch and about the, the industry as it was then and how that's actually quite relevant to today and, and the, the upcoming next generation. Um, and we also, if you search the site for, if you just search the site for PlayStation 2, you'll find a, an article called, uh, it was something like how the how the PlayStation 2 changed the world or something to that effect. It's by um, Alex Calvin. It's actually um, an interview with the bosses of Sony Europe, UK and America at the time um, when they were launching the PlayStation 2. But I thought I'd, thought I'd just kind of discuss um, the impact that that console had on the industry and, of course, our fondest memories. Okay, so talking about, like, favorite memories, because I've seen a number of people um, doing this online lately, it's it's weird to me that kind of the, the, the place the PS2 has in in the industry's conventional wisdom now, because, like, when the PS2 was, when that generation was current like the list of favorite games that everyone had felt like it was, you know, there was almost no overlap between what one person loved and what another, because uh, there was, there was just so much diversity in, in the library. And like, I, I think of some of my favorite PS2 games, uh, robot alchemic drive, downhill domination, magic pendul, color quest, mortal Kombat, Shaolin monks. And, like these are these are games that were fantastic but they're not the games that people think of now when they think of the PS2 generation the things that i see people associate the PS2 generation now uh with now are are games that are re-released a lot you know like shadow of the colossus or or god of war 1 and 2 maybe ratchet and clank like there are some franchises from the PS2 that are remembered, but it's it's kind of weird to me to see the way it, it just feels like this this incredibly huge library of really uh, diverse and experimental titles has has been sort of papered over, and some of them are still remembered. Every Katamari Damashi is like you know on on everyone's lists of necessary ps2 games and all that but it seems like there's just so many more that that were largely forgotten about and we don't we don't really have a way to play them anymore yeah i think um that i think you're absolutely right on that brendan like i when i kind of reflect on what a lot of my favorite games were of that period you know there's stuff like primal and blood omen 2 which like those are not series which ever really went anywhere or if they did they they died out and they're not <clears throat> they don't really have a place in like modern gaming anymore like i actually booted up primal some the little sort of towards the end of last year i had to dig out the old playstation 2 and plug it in with all of its crazy cables and and yeah it it does feel like that 
diversity of different different games is just really kind of like faded away in recent years again because i guess it's the focus on fewer bigger better and you just have less sort of strange little gems that perhaps weren't very good to begin with but they kind of had at least something going for them that made them a little bit unique or a little bit um i guess kind of worth just experimenting with if nothing else so i i never actually owned a ps2 um i lived by (laughs) sorry back in the um that that is that's even stronger than the reaction i expected um no, I kind of, I was that was back in the day. I I, I emphasise I was young. Two, you know, two thousand when it came out, I was fourteen. I was like, 10, mate. so I didn't have the money for. Yeah, okay, okay, thank you, thank you, making me feel play, even play, more like Played GTA three when um, I was ten because my parents were irresponsible, had made yes. questionable decisions in in how they raised me. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're that age, though, you are very much kind of a single console gamer, and I was obviously a Nintendo gamer. I've just always been a Nintendo gamer. So I, my memories of PS2 come from living vicariously through borrowing my cousins or um, stealing my sisters. Um, actually, no, I like. I went halves with my sister specifically to get 24, the game, oh. because it was and remain because <laughs> it was my favourite TV show, and I really wanted to play the video game. And it, but she wanted SingStar, so. Yeah, memories of PS PS Two are as much about like SingStar and the iToy games. Um, like my little cousins when we used to babysit them, like we used to come home and play the like, iToy games all day. Like it's it's funny. Like people, it feels like people attribute the Wii for bringing in that broader you know five to ninety five you know audience into into video games. You know with Wii Sports and Wii Play and all those sort of games. But the groundwork was laid by. PS2 with things like SingStar, iToy. I think Buzz was um, PS2 as well. All these kind of massive family... Uh, the amount of people I knew that had a PlayStation 2 purely for SingStar and or iToy and then as a DVD player. Yes. Like, and it was that first console that showed that games actually could be you know, in the living room, not in the in the children's room or the second, you know, in the dining room where the kids' TV is and just to keep them out and give mum and dad a bit of peace. Like, it was a family thing. It was everyone could get involved. And that really started with the PS2, um, with the PS2. And I, looking back now, I kind of, I don't think I fully appreciated that at the time at how much the world of games was expanding. Um, I, you know, in terms of, games aside obviously from 24 the game which was superb um i miss i miss jack and daxter but not like the the later ones like jack 2 got into this whole you know guns and grand theft auto style structure and jack 3 was some weird desert racing thing i loved jack and daxter precursor legacy because it was this kind of open world platform game that i genuinely don't think i've seen since where like i was having this argument with chris because chris was like uh super mario odyssey is an open world platform it's like no it's not Jack and Daxter was great because, like, the, the, the levels, if you were, and I'm doing that in air quotes, the levels were all connected. Like, it was just one big world. So you had the beach level, but then you walked along the beach to get to the jungle level. And it was all connected, and you don't have that anymore. It's all loading screens and hub worlds, and yeah, I, I just I just miss that structure. I'll stop talking now, I promise. <laughs> I, can, I can relate a lot to what you're saying about it being a family thing, though, because m- much like you... 
um, the PS2 is a console I was sharing with my brother. I mean, every console I had as a kid was technically my brother's, to be fair. Um, so I have, like, fond memories of this console, but watching my brother playing as well as me playing, like, I have very, very fond memories of um, GTA Vice City, which, which to this day remains one of my favorite game of all time. I have it on my PS4, sometimes I just start it, and I drive and listen to the radio on that game, and that makes me very happy. <laughs> uh, but I also have very fond, like, air quotes again, memories of watching him play Silent Hill and Resi and being completely traumatized by it. And to this day, it explains why I don't watch horror films or play horror games, because I'm just too scared about them. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a weird <laughs> one, because it's as much a memory of me playing... But like that, it is uh, watching my brother play. But Vice City still my my favorite game on this console, for sure. Vice City was truly a a wonderful shonky masterpiece. I love it. So and again, much. I was <laughs> Vice City is amazing. I, I did, this is the thing. Some of the best games that console had were, or the games it was best known for were on other. So I played Vice City to death mm. because I had it on PC. It was it, you know it is ported to to other platforms and. So some of the best games that 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 console owns in in quotation marks aren't aren't exclusive to that console. They are on so many other platforms, and as Brendan said, like they've been remade so you know so many times. So you don't have to have had a PS2 to have played the PS2's most influential games. I am absolutely with you on them. The radio comment there, Marie, because I used to. Uh, Park up at the side and listen to Vice City Public Radio. Uh, yes. pressing it's just like, the issue. just so people are aware, by the way, all the radio in Vice City are on Spotify. So, you know, if you want, sometimes I work listening to the Vice City radios and I'm living my best life. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, at that time, there was, if you were only going to make a game for one platform, you would default to the PS2, yeah. right? I mean, PC hmm. gaming was not. It wasn't in, like, the dire straits that it was in, like, closer to 2004, I guess. But it it, it was kind of on a downturn, it seemed like, to me anyways. I know there was uh, Half-Life and, and some other great things happening. But uh, so so much of, like, the, the small publishers um, would, if they were going to make something, they're only making, you know, like a PS2 version the the larger stuff you might get an xbox or a gamecube port but like that that concentration of if you're if you're not well funded enough to like hit multiple SKUs here you're gonna go with the ps2 and so they wound up with like there were so many fantastic like niche games from small publishers because the, the cost of development also was low enough that you could have all these small publishers thinking that they could make a business off of it and that they were all just putting out these these weird experimental games that i don't know they they could find an audience and and they could they could make their their money back and you could scrounge by at the time and and right after the ps2 generation uh we had hd come in and the cost of development for everything just skyrocketed and it just paved over so much of the diversity in the in the industry and that was like, I, I don't know. I think back on the PS2 and it's sort of bittersweet to start with because I was like, the Dreamcast was my favorite console. Um, probably still is. <laughs> and and it, it failed in large part just because the PS2 was coming a year down the road and everyone was waiting for that. So... Uh, Even... 
even the exclusives on other platforms um, ended up on the PS2 because it was just such a dominant platform. I remember there was um, Capcom and Nintendo did a deal to have five exclusive titles, including Resident Evil 4, I think it was like PNO3, Beautiful Joe, and then half of those ended up on the PS2 as well because it was just a bigger market. You couldn't afford to ignore the PlayStation 2. Which was great because... Resident Evil 2, I got that on PS2. Sorry, Resident Evil 4, I got that on PS2. Absolutely loved it. And I first played it at a friend's house on the GameCube. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I'd ever seen a GameCube or even kind of recognized a Nintendo console, basically. And I was looking at it, it's like, what the hell is this controller? It is the best controller. It's... That is my favourite controller, my favourite console of all time. You You choose your words carefully. That's fine, but but fourteen year old me who had (laughs) never seen such an like aberration in my entire (laughs) life, I was like, I cannot play video games on whatever the hell this is supposed to be. Yeah. And so when it when it when it came to PS2, I was like, oh great, it's I can actually play it now. No, that's and, that's yeah, I that refuse. Game to death. <laughs> I absolutely refuse to sit here and listen to people say nice things about the game. Oh Cube come control. on, it's the best. It's just perfection. <laughs> he's leaving because he can't deal with the reality of the GameCube being the best controller. That's why he's leaving. <laughs> I would love to hear 14-year-old Hayden's take on the N64 controller, oh, the three-pronged abomination. I'll, 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 give you, the... I'll give you 29-year-old Hayden Taylor's <laughs> take on that. Why? Just what a... Re- <laughs> you only got two hands, Nintendo! We've only got two hands! Why? <laughs> on that note, and with Brendan... Brendan just receding into the distance. Um, I think we are going to wrap it up there. That is all the time we have got. Thank you so much for joining me, team. We'll be back next Monday with the latest uh, stories and discussion on the biggest trends in the industry. In the meantime, you can find all the previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms of your choice, and you can get your daily dose of news, insight, and analysis at gamesindustry.biz. Good, good to know that you are anti-coronavirus, <laughs> yes, um, yes. Marie. I'm glad, glad that's on the record. I am glad too. So how do I come back from this now? Um, <laughs> what did I want to say now? Oh, no. no. Sorry. <laughs> completely derailed you. First you said and now you said You're really making oh, my I'm edit so difficult. I'm so sorry. Do you actually edit those out? I'm going to now. <laughs> oh, no.